This week in Revolt Black News, we take a second look at the Second Amendment. Now, between the right to bear arms and the right to just live, see, we got to reconcile what is exactly best for our people and our peace. Now, we see the glocks, we see the gaps, but we also see the gumption. And that's probably where we should look to find some common ground. Now, listen, if America truly and unconditionally values our prosperity, at least as much as it values and loves its guns, then we got to ask ourselves, what do guns actually do for black people? Do they neglect us? Do they harm us? Do they endanger us? Or do they protect us? And see, there might not just be one answer to that question, especially as it relates to our oppression in terms of the Derek Chauvin trial or Georgia remixing and updating Jim Crow into modern voting laws. So listen, this is one of the most complicated issues we've had to look at. Y'all know the vibes. We never back down from a breakdown. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now recently, all of our timelines have been flooded with mass shootings and the histories of these events in our country. But today we're gonna to have a broader, larger conversation about gun ownership in the black community and exactly where this effort to protect ourselves comes from. Later on in the show, Tanya Christian is gonna moderate a panel on the anti-gun perspective. But we're gonna start things off with a round table on the pro-gun point of view. Joining me is co-founder of Redstone Firearms, which is a federal firearms dealer in Southern California, Ms. Geneva Solomon. Also with us is rapper, political activist, and founder of Black Guns Matter, Maj Torre. Welcome both of y'all to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so listen, here at Revolt Black News, obviously we talk a whole lot about Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, Maj, I want to start with you. Your organization is Black Guns Matter. So can you tell us a little bit about what implored you to set up that organization and nonprofit? Um, well, one, you just keep seeing guys catch the same uh, possession charge. You go to Detroit, you go to L.A., you go to, you know, everywhere. Guys are getting arrested for simple possession. We're not talking about guys, and some of them are your friends. We're not talking about guys that, you know, have, you know, robbed somebody or killed somebody, just missing information. So that was the impetus for starting Black Guns Matter. And during that time in 2016, kind of like, you know, this go around on the, the, the election cycle, we were seeing a lot of, you know, uprising and civil unrest. Um, but you can't say Black Lives Matter and, and not have the means to protect Black life. You know, and I think some people have the misconception that, you know, Black Guns Matter is somehow running contrary to the concept of Black Lives Mattering. And I think with the racist roots of gun control in this nation, it's very important that Black people do not outsource their security and rely on the government for that. So we just wanted to put together something from a holistic perspective of conflict resolution, de-escalation, arming the people and informing them about safe and responsible gun ownership where it's needed the most. Fantastic. Now, Maj, speaking of, you brought up uh, the stigmas and really kind of the, some of the false narratives about black gun ownership running contrary to Black Lives Matter. And we're gonna get straight to that right now. Now, we all know in this conversation that there's a lot of narrative, some of which is very false, uh, about black gun ownership and how uh, gun ownership in general can make us all unsafe. Can you both, starting with you, Geneva, uh, give us a sense of correcting some of those misconceptions about black gun ownership and the safety of black communities? Yeah, a lot of the falsehoods that you hear is that having a gun makes you unsafe. Can that be mm -hmm. true? P 
possibly, but we don't believe in that if you are going about it the right way. If you're going out there and you're just getting a gun and you bring it home and there's no conversations with the children in the home, if that's the case, or the family members of that home, and talking about that firearm and knowing that they have the education if they stumble upon a gun when you're not around, that can make it unsafe. So that's what the work that we do is we're going out into the community, we're going in our firearm store and we're doing classes to make sure that that education is there um, so that, you know, that narrative can go away, that responsible gun ownership does exist in our communities. It is something that we take seriously and we're not in, you know, we're not out here to just put guns in people's hands and say, okay, you're good to go. That that's the falsehood that needs to be changed. Yeah, I 100 percent agree uh, with what Geneva is saying in regards to, you know, this misconception that, you know, as, as we're going to arm people to protect themselves against bad people, legitimate bad people and or corrupt portions of the state. Right. Because agents of the state at certain times, obviously, they're humans and they're not perfect. Somehow that that means like we cool with the killer, like Tupac said, like we, mm. we, we just yeah, we just want guns and we want danger. And we and that's the, the, the worst thing. Um, and that that misconception isn't actually a misconception. It's designed that way. It's designed to make oh. sure that our communities look like, uh, oh, oh, this is, they just want to be unsafe because let's be oh. perfectly honest. Gun control is racist, flat out, all of it. You know, you can't run something like that that has a history in the slave codes and then uh, oh. run contrary to, you know, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And then where there's the most black people put the most infringements. You know, so that's that's uh, kind of like tricking people into convincing them out of their own rights in that regard. That's by design. That's not an accident. But it is mm -hmm. um, incorrect tremendously. And I think the last thing, too, is just making sure that um, we're not having this conversation from a place of fear. We're not having this conversation. Oh, you're going to go buy all of these guns because you're scared of Biden. You're scared of Trump. That's not the thing. Americans, black mm -hmm. Americans have had a solid history with firearms ownership. We have fought in every single war for this nation, and we got a rich tradition of firearm, firearms heritage. So those, that, that kind of runs in tandem. You know, We can break that falsehood that we're not safe and haven't had firearms by knowing a historical context. But a lot of people say uh, that are anti-gun positions say that the firearm uh, access has become too convenient. Uh, can you kind of reconcile uh, the the I don't know, uh, what do I call it? the kind of hijacking of this notion of what's convenient and what's not, and share a bit of your personal experience if you can. Yeah, um, I can tell you that if anyone on the anti-gun side went to buy a gun for the first time last year in the state of California, they, their mind was blown because we yeah. had people from celebrity clients to people who were totally anti-gun asking to pay more money to bypass the process. Because here in the state of California, you know, you may see articles that says it's easy as going to get a gun out of a vending machine. And that's not the mm -hmm. case. You have to right. have money for one, because there's a lot of fees associated with that. Two, you have to take a test and pass it. You have to have a, a, a license, so to speak. And then you have to wait 10 days. And California mm -hmm. will prevent you from buying a firearm even if you have a delinquent speeding ticket. So when someone wow. says that it is so easy to get a firearm, 
I would actually challenge them to walk through what that process really looks like because their mind would be blown. And so they're speaking from a place of ignorance and something that they maybe have read or like a headline that was maybe fear mongering because that is not the truth. Wrapping up the educational point, do any of you want to put out uh, websites or videos that people can visit online right now to get some of that basic uh, entry level education? Maj? Um, yeah, for me, you know, all of our work, our classes are free. They're crowdfunded. Um, if anybody has learned something today, I want to make sure that, you know, we can continue to do these classes. Um, GoFundMe.com forward slash Black Guns Matter. I think it's also very important to make sure that you're listening to what the sister is saying as a African-American woman with a federal firearms license with a store in California. I think people need to understand the levels of She's like at the final level of fighting against a boss with those, you know, with those types of moves and yeah. she's a boss and her mate in, in her own right. So I want to make sure that people are making sure that they're following up with Redstone Firearms, especially in the state yes. of California. Um, so, you know, that's that's my take on it. Redstone Firearms is a nationwide educational resource. You can catch us on Instagram at Redstone Firearms if you need help locating um, someone in your area, reach out to us. We have a network across the entire United States. Um, we can get you in touch with someone local um, of your preference. Um, and then, you know, we have our website, restonefirearms.com. Um, and that's the simple way to reach out to us. You don't have to be a California person to reach out because truly we want to make sure you get the education and the knowledge um, to protect yourself. And it doesn't have to be with us. We just want to get you to a place of comfort. Listen, we appreciate that, y'all. Geneva Maj, wow, dropping important, important gems uh, that can hopefully avail some people to their own self-protection in this much-needed climate. Thank y'all for the conversation and the information. All right, now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we've got this week's headlines. we got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now, usually we have a whole bunch of headlines to get through, but this week with the Derek Chauvin trial and Georgia's recent voting laws, we're gonna keep the energy exactly where it belongs on these two particular headlines. So we're gonna start with the trial of Derek Chauvin. Chauvin has pleaded not guilty to second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter charges. Now let's look at the opening statements that revealed that the events that we all believe to be eight minutes and 46 seconds were in fact nine minutes and 29 seconds. Let's watch. You will learn what happened in that nine minutes and 29 seconds. The most important numbers you will hear in this trial are nine to nine. What happened in those nine minutes and 29 seconds when Mr. Derek Chauvin was applying this excessive force to the body of Mr. George Floyd the evidence is far greater than 9 minutes and 29 seconds. And you will learn that Derek Chauvin did exactly what he had been trained to do over the course of his 19-year career. And as cross-examinations transpired, witness Donald Wynn Williams testified, and we saw that he and Chauvin's defense lawyer got into a pretty contentious back and forth. Let's take a look. After you called him a bum 13 times, you called him a f***ing bum. That's what you heard? 
Did you say that? Is that what you heard? I'm asking you, sir. I'm pretty did sure you I say did. that? You heard it. I'm pretty sure you did. You call him a. If that's what you heard, I'm sure that's. I'm what asking did. you. Did you say that? If that's what the video recorded, so I did. Now, in regards to the events that actually led to George Floyd's death, Williams went on to say this. I did call the police on the police because I believed I witnessed a murder. And off-duty firefighter and witness at the scene, Genevieve Hansen, she gave an emotional testimony about her desperate attempts to provide medical attention to George Floyd. Let's watch. How were you doing that, trying to get the officers to focus on you and get help? I think, I've, in my memory, I tried different tactics of um, calm and reasoning um, and tried to be assertive. Um, I, I pled and was desperate. And 18-year-old Darnella Frazier, who infamously recorded the footage of George Floyd's death, testified as well. And she went on record to say this, when I look at George Floyd, I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I look at how that could have been one of them. And Frazier's nine-year-old cousin also testified. And we're gonna watch that in a second, but remember, because she is a minor, she cannot be seen. Let's take a look. Having been there on this day and seeing the, the officer on top of George Floyd, how did you feel about that? How did it affect you? I was sad and kind of mad. And, and tell us, why were you sad and mad? Because it felt like he was stopping his breathing and it is kind of like hurting him. The nine-year-old witness went on to testify for five minutes in total and she was not questioned by the defense. Okay, so here's what I really want y'all to know. It's gonna be a lot of testimony, a lot of witnesses, a lot of cross-examination and direct exam. This case will ultimately turn on pretty much one fact, whether or not the jurors believe the prosecutor's version of how George Floyd died or the defense's. Now, remember that original autopsy report, you know, the one that showed that it was fentanyl, methamphetamine, and the virus that causes COVID-19 all found in George Floyd's system. See, that was important because that autopsy is what the defense uses to support its claim that George Floyd essentially died because he was high. And see, remember, that original autopsy listed George Floyd's cause of death as cardiopulmonary arrest. That's important. See, that's completely different from the later independent autopsy report that determined that George Floyd's cause of death was actually asphyxiation from sustained pressure, probably that knee that was on his neck. So listen, as we hear from the defense that Floyd was high, y'all, we got to remember that the one thing Derek Chauvin and his defense team never seemed to recognize is that George Floyd was actually a human being. He was never treated as such. And that's what this trial is about. Again, y'all, as this trial continues to unfold, we're going to do what we do and keep you up to date on the latest developments. All right, now over to the other headline, rocking the Black community this week. And sadly, this one is one we're all too familiar with, voter suppression. Now, just last week, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, he signed a new election measure into law that includes limitations to the absentee ballot request period, decreases in the Dropbox locations, and tried and true photo ID requirements for absentee voting by mail. But the most controversial piece of all of this is actually twofold. 
The first is that citizens are banned from handing out food and water to voters waiting in line. And the second, the GOP majority state election board has the discretion to remove and replace county election officials. And I think we all know exactly how that will end up. Now, as expected, the controversial and really problematic bill has caused such backlash from civil rights group that members of the Georgia State Election Board, including Secretary of State himself, Brad Raffensperger, they're all being sued for violating the U.S. Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. Now, in addition to the courts, civil rights groups, and the National Black Justice Coalition, they're all asking that the PGA Tour and the Masters Tournament, normally held in Augusta, they're asking them to pull out of their events in Georgia. Sources also say that Major League Baseball Players Union is considering relocating the upcoming All-Star Game, currently scheduled for the Atlanta Braves' home field of Truist Park. Now, y'all, sadly, this is not even just unique to Georgia. Now, the Florida House of Representatives, well, now they're adding a provision to an existing bill, and it also forbids food or water to voters. We're all over this, y'all. We've seen it before. We know how this game is played. So here at Revolt Black News, we will keep you up to date as these stories develop. Okay, now that's it for this week's headlines. And ahead, I've got an interview with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams as a part of our New York City mayoral race series. But up next, Tanya Christian moderates a conversation with Danielle Moody and Torre about an anti-gun perspective. We've got a whole lot more Revolt Black News after this. Revolt Black News. It's Tanya Christian here leading a conversation on the gun debate. Now, earlier, Ebony moderated a conversation from the pro-gun perspective. So we're now bringing in the anti-gun side of things. And joining me are the co-hosts of Democracy-ish, Danielle Moody and Torrey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I wouldn't say I'm anti-gun. I'm pro-gun safety. <laughs> okay. Thank you for the clarification. <laughs> I'm anti-gun, so there's that. Okay, you're anti-gun. <laughs> the, the, the other side immediately thinks that we want to confiscate all of their guns. And that is, and to start the conversation there puts us in the gun safety camp on total defensive. I don't think that citizens should not have guns at all, or at least I'm not willing to say that in public. Um, but I think that you know, the easy <laughs> access to guns, the, uh, the, the prevalence of AR-15s and machine guns, um, these things are not making anybody safer, right? And the ease with which people can acquire guns, um, go to the store, pop, pop, pop down your money and get a gun right away when you can't do many other things in society right away, that doesn't make any sense for society. So like, I want to see more gun safety rather than like just say, you know, no guns whatsoever, even though that would probably be better. Switzerland, Japan, New Zealand would say yes. New Zealand. Yeah. Australia. The reality is, is that if, if guns, right, were to make us safe, then America would be one of the safest places on the planet. And it is not. It's quite the opposite. Right. We are walking around here with AR-15s and magazine clips that can take out 100 people within uh, less than 60 seconds. And we think that that's normal. So the idea that in order to be gun proponents, we need to have these wartime 
you know, weapons around in suburban America, urban America is preposterous to me. And so I am against guns because I feel like if we had taken action 22 years ago when Columbine happened, right, and the world was stunned, just imagine how many tens of thousands of lives, if not hundreds of thousands of lives, would have been saved over the last 22 years if we did then what New Zealand did after the mosque shooting a couple of years ago. Danielle, you mentioned Columbine, that being 22 years ago. I am curious from both of you guys, um, was there a specific event that made you take this stance? I mean, to, for me, it's been all of them. But honestly, it was, it was Newtown and Parkland, right? When America decided that it was okay, that first and second graders could be murdered in their classrooms, and we do nothing but offer thoughts and prayers. I knew then that we had lost the gun debate, and now they need to be some kind of security guard and cop, and we're saying, oh, well, what will make kids safer is allowing teachers to carry guns in schools or providing them with bulletproof backpacks. That's our response to children being mowed down in their classrooms to me is absolutely ridiculous. There are a number of, of people who are not necessarily gonna be at an NRA conference, but at the same time, they feel as though guns are needed um, in their home, in their community, simply because police don't necessarily always do their job. Taking that anti-gun approach, what do you feel should replace guns as a use of protection? We've all seen, if we live in the neighborhoods, we've all seen that the police quite often arrive and make the situation more violent, right? And amplify yep. the tension and the drama in a situation, introducing guns into a situation. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, the, so that the criminologists see is that guns tend to be uh, contagious, that when one gang in an area becomes armed, the other gangs in the area feel that they need to become armed to keep up, right? And the amount of guns needs to ride like an arms race, like we saw with America and Russia. If more people were able to get jobs rather than being oppressed by the war on drugs, which puts them into the system, mm -hmm. which keeps them out of the above ground economy, which makes them say like, oh, well, I have to go into the underground economy to support myself and my family, so that which ultimately means I need to acquire guns to participate. Most of the gun use that we're talking about is done by young men who are between 16 and 24. After that, most people are not going to be problematic gun users. We're just asking for trouble. I mean, like, do we really need to be able to carry, we really want people to carry guns in bars? Like, is that, does that make any sense? Or at a Starbucks where we saw pictures of white men carrying bazookas as if, what, was your, your Frappuccino too much for you today? What happened to Philando Castile when he uh, warned, right, said to the officer, I have this gun, he was shot to death and the NRA did nothing. Or John Crawford, who was killed in the middle of a Walmart that sells guns for holding a gun in a store that sells guns. Do I feel safer? Because I sure as hell don't. There is not a place that we can name where there is not on record someone that was killed in said place. Not a church, not a mosque, not a synagogue, nowhere. Danielle, you brought up Philando Castile. I feel like oftentimes uh, when 
we speak out against law enforcement gunning down Black men and women. Um, the narrative on the other side is, well, there's so much Black-on-Black -black crime, so why is that an issue? So I want to know from you guys, um, why do you think that narrative continues and how do we combat it? The fear of Black-on-Black -black crime, which is a misnomer, most people commit crime toward the people who are physically near them, right? So, you know, I, I, I have a whole movement that I'm gonna be starting soon about white on white crime, which is not getting enough songs, there's not enough marches, and we're gonna to have to have a whole nother show dealing with that um, because it's a very, very tragic issue. They are killing each other, white lives matter, and they are just not taking enough care <laughs> of their own lives. But, um, yes. you know, if, if if the NRA and the right truly cared about black lives and black on black crime, then they absolutely would support gun safety laws, because that would if we decrease the number of guns in the hood, surely by their logic, that would make fewer people uh, have fewer people getting killed. Right. Everyone knows this. It's one of the biggest memes. If every black person who was of age decided tomorrow to go and buy any kind of gun or build their arsenal or do a number of things, we would have gun reform in America. It would be instant because look at what is happening right now for a fraudulent right man who said there was a big lie with regard to our voting and there were all of this fraud. Now we have over 253 pieces of legislation across this country for a problem that doesn't exist. Right, but we can't get one piece of legislation for one that actually has a body count attached to it. Right. And so we, you know, we have to have these conversations in the context of knowing who we're talking about and what their motivation is. And we know that the motivation is consistently to keep black people down, to arm white people as much as possible, because at the end of the day, they only see us as animals that need to be taken down. As we move forward toward black and brown and Asian people outnumbering white people in America, which will happen in the next 20 or so years. Um, I think you're gonna see a great panic and fear in a lot of uh, white people to where they want to be violent in striking back against this feeling of losing the country. But us picking up guns is not the answer. Torrey, thank you so much for bringing up that point on the shifting demographics in this country. I think it's an important point to bring up when we have these gun and anti-gun debates. Um, to both of you, Danielle and Torrey, thank you so much for joining me in this much-needed conversation about gun ownership. I appreciate your time. All right, we're taking a quick break, and then Blue Talusma and Jameer Pond celebrate all this week's Black excellence in entertainment. More Revolt Black news after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. It's Blue Toulousma here, hosting this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment. And at my side in this celebration is actor, producer, Jameer Pond. What's going on, Jameer? How you doing, Blue? Excited to be here. I, I, I'm really excited because we have good news to talk about for once, and that's always a good thing. For once, you know? 
Let's get started. The NAACP Awards, which took place this past weekend, had some really, really big winners. Um, most notable amongst them were Eddie Murphy, who received the Hall of Fame Award, the late and great Chadwick Boseman, and his co-star Viola Davis, who received Best Actor and Actress for their performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And then music, Janae Aiko, Beyonce, and my boo Drake also won as well. Um, did you have any favorites from the NAACP Awards? Drake, please call me if you see this. <laughs> Drake, call blue, please. Um, favorites. Okay, so yes. So my two favorites, you already named them. Uh, Eddie Murphy. I'm a huge fan of Eddie Murphy. Um, very instrumental in my career and in my life. And he's someone who deserves this award, right? Like Eddie's been making movies for 40 years and has been in show business for 40 plus years. And to see him get that kind of recognition, not only is it needed, but it just goes to show you, like, even the stars up to the higher, higher, highest caliber, you know, still need that, A, we appreciate you, my brother, for doing so much, um, not only for movies, but just for Black people in general. So that's number one. Shout out to Eddie. And then the second is uh, Viola Davis. Um, Viola um, Davis, what she has done in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was like really defy the odds and i gotta shout out august wilson for writing an incredible play but you Absolutely. see this bigger dark-skinned woman who uh is bisexual with gold teeth in in 1927 you know what i'm saying and even though she was uh disregarded and towards the end of her career um we saw like bessie smith come in and she spoke about it what Ma Rainey did was she knew her worth and she was very cognizant of what that was. And I think for a lot of Hollywood, you get scared about you seeing this dark, prominent black woman who knows her worth. And I, I know, you know, she was my front runner for, for uh, the Golden Globes. And, I, you know, I pray she get the Oscar. But to, to have that representation on screen at a time like this, we do talk about the disparities uh, between uh, just dark-skinned women in general in, in the business. I thought it was an on-point representation that, that, that needed to be seen. So shout out to Viola. Somebody else who actually really excites me is another um, Image Award winner, Marseille Martin. Did you hear about how she made headlines recently because she did an interview with the, in The Hollywood Reporter. Now we all know Marseille Martin is amazing. She's probably gonna be president yeah. in the next years, right? She's the youngest executive producer in Hollywood right now, but she recently made headlines because she revealed that in her entertainment company, um, Genius Entertainment, they have a no black pain rule. This means, and I quote, listen to this, you're going to get your whole life hearing this. She said, if it's black pain, I don't go for it because there's so many films and projects about that. So that's not who I am. I want to make sure that it is diverse and real in its own way. And then she also pointed out that she recognizes that black pain is real, but that we can celebrate those who are in pain without exploiting their pain. She's, she's a child. She's still a minor. What do we think about this? That somebody this young is making something like this. Yeah, it, it honestly gives me hope for the future, right? Because clearly Hollywood hasn't been able to get that kind of thinking at the helm of the the writers and 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 the the people who put the movies in the production. You you have a, a young woman uh, who 
is saying, I don't I, like, yes, we can see these slave movies. We can see the, the civil rights movies, the Jim Crow era. The black pain is at the essence of every prominent Hollywood movie that we see that's nominated for Oscars always yes. delves in, in the center of black pain in some way, shape or form. You, you have this young woman who's saying we have enough of that. And I totally agree because I think as, as black people on screen, sometimes we just want to, I, I know I just want to see a coming to age story, but because black right. people are looking at yeah, black people looked at, you know, we, we, we are 30 before we turn 15 in the eyes of society. So when you have that scope on it, it's, it, it prohibits people from understanding that black people normal, just like anybody else. So I love what she's doing. And, you know, I, I, I commend her. I wish her luck, too, because Hollywood is, is rough. So I, I, I wish her the best. Um, speaking of people that that we adore. I don't know if you've seen all these commercials. You would have to be under a rock not to see these commercials. But everywhere you've looked, you've seen ads for Robin Roberts Presents Mahalia. It's this Lifetime mm -hmm. biopic about the life of Mahalia Jackson. It is finally mm -hmm. airing on Lifetime this Saturday. I cannot wait to see it. One of the things about uh, this movie and this project that I love is number one, Danielle Brooks from Orange is the New Black. Speaking of dark-skinned black women getting their moment in the sun, hey. she is amazing as Mahalia mm -hmm. Jackson. Like She looks just like her. But they mm -hmm. also pinpoint that Mahalia wasn't just a gospel legend. She actually was an integral part of the civil rights movement. We had Absolutely. no, I had no idea personally. Um, and there's one scene when they show Mahalia say, Martin, tell them about your dream. And I was like, wait, yeah. is that how that's yeah. She. So are you, you know, going to be watching this weekend? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I plan to, I plan to check it out. Um, just because yes, a lot of people don't know that about Mahalia Jackson. Um, I, I saw in Selma, Martin would actually call her just for her to, to sing to him in the middle of the night. So we often don't see like a lot of, uh, the, the representation of the, the strong women behind the strong men in the civil rights movement and not even just behind, but on the front line, like Mahalia Jackson wasn't just a singer, but she was very instrumental in uh, the civil rights movement. So to have that aspect as well as the singing aspect, it kind of brings history full circle, right? Cause sometimes things like that get lost oh, in the yeah. shuffle, especially when you're told to just shut up and sing or shut up and dribble. But to see like her on the front line and kind of there standing side by side with Martin is a treat. You know, so I, I and, and Daniel Brooks is just a beast acting. So I'm excited, you know. Thank you for joining me for this celebration of black excellence. And up next is my good sis, Ebony, who's returning for a conversation with Brooklyn Borough President and New York City Mayor Candidate Eric Adams. More Vote Black News after this. All right, y'all, welcome back. Now, we're gonna continue Revolt Black News' New York City mayoral race series. We've got joining us this week another candidate. He's currently Brooklyn Borough President. Welcome to the show, Eric Adams. Thank you, great to be on. I feel as though the show is named after my life, Revolt, you know? Mm. Well, we'll get into that in just a second. I appreciate that. So listen, of course, we wanna know all of your priorities for the city of New York. But Eric, listen, this is Revolt Black News. So first and foremost, we want to know and our viewers want to know, 
What does your election as mayor mean for the black community? Uh, where do you stand on particular policies that your administration will implement to make life better for black New Yorkers? New York is, is an important city. And the way it goes New York uh, really is going to go the entire country. And if you look at across the country, you're going to find the same thing. Uh, systemic poverty among black of folks throughout this entire country. And what I'm going to do here in this city is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout this entire country that we don't have to live in systemic poverty all over this country. Well, what are you going to do? That begs the question. I, I love that. That sounds fantastic. What policies will get us out of that systemic poverty dynamic that you are accurately speaking to? So let's think about it for a moment. Cities are made up of agencies. Our agencies are creating crises for each other, and the byproduct of those crises impacts black and brown people every day. For example, the Department of Education. Mm. It produces our criminal justice crisis, which overwhelmingly impacts black and brown people in, in, in the city. 65% of black children don't meet proficiency every year in our city. Yet we're spending $27 billion and we're getting an inferior product. So we need to change that entire yes. dynamic around education. So what is one thing you personally um, and your administration would do policy-wise that would be different so that we can get uh, a superior educational product, specifically for those 60-some-odd uh, percent of Black students? You would speak to every candidate that's running for mayor and they would tell you education is K-12 or 0 to 3. Education is not K-12. It is, it is pregnancy through profession. So what is Eric Adams going to do as mayor? When, if that mother is not receiving the right nutrition, the right folic acid, the right iron, the right iodine, while she's carrying her child, that baby can be born with irreversible learning disabilities. So I'm going to partner every mother and her first child with a doula. That doula is going to teach that mother the first thousand days of life where 80% of our brain neuron growth uh, actually takes, takes place and is going to start the process of turning around how our mothers are given these uh, obligations of raising these scholars without the support that they need. And that includes if your child, if your baby is dyslexic, you should not have to sue the city to get the services you need. Now that's an innovative policy, a doula for every mother, um, indeed. Emerson College released a poll listing Andrew Yang in the current lead of the mayoral race with 32% support. And you, Eric, you were in second place at 19%. But of course, New York Times has already released a published article saying that 50% of Democratic voters, of course, do not currently know who they are voting for. Are you paying attention to these polls, Eric's? Do they impact the way you are campaigning uh, or are you just keeping your eyes to the ground? When you look at uh, political, one of the tabloids in the city, they say Eric Adams has the broadest base of support than any other candidate. I'm a son of two boroughs. Uh, I'm the borough president of Brooklyn, but uh, where I was born, but I also was raised in a borough of Queens. Those are two of the largest boroughs in the city. When you look at the polls, they have overpolled the voting block. That's not my voting block. So those polls, to me, are not significant at all. And I believe at the end of the day, you're going to see another mayor after 30 years of color, and that's Eric Adams.
Now, uh, black folks, of course, Eric, they look at your resume and they see that you are current uh, Brooklyn Borough President. That experience is there. But also they're going to see that you are a retired New York Police Department captain, right? And, and I don't have to tell you, brother, what the contentious relationship between black folks and law enforcement has been, not just uh, in, in the country, but specifically in New York City. Um, very particularly, uh, of course, the tragic death of Eric Garner in 2014 uh, and, and all of the, the uprising and outrage and, and contention that happened there. Talk to me, Eric, about why you can be trusted as mayor of New York, specifically for black people, when black people have, I believe, rightly so, such distrust for law enforcement. Well, I, I think you said something that's interesting, contentious but complicated relationship with law enforcement. Uh, when you do an examination of my life, uh, people in New York, they know me. They know of the days at 15, year, 15 years old, I was arrested and beat bad by police officers. Uh, my brother and I were traumatized over that experience. But a group of civil rights leaders came to me and asked me to go into law enforcement. This is during a year when uh, Eleanor Bumpus was shot and killed by Sullivan. I started an organization called 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care. And for 22 years, we fought against the racism in the police department in a very public manner. I testified in federal court against the stop and frisk. I passed laws in Albany uh, to stop the keeping of database of innocent black and brown people. Uh, so when people say, well, hey, he's a cop. No, I'm not a cop. I'm a civil rights fighter. Um, let me now turn to qualified immunity. As you well know, New York City Council just recently, uh, this week, voted to end qualified immunity, becoming the very first U.S. city to do so. Uh, do you see this as a bridge of more accountability for law enforcement? Uh, do you think that it will have an inverse reaction to people wanting to be in law enforcement? Or do you think the net positive is worth, uh, worth any fallout? Yes, I, I do believe it would be a good thing. It will hold those officers um, accountable for actions that they do that is in violation of a person's civil rights and both the physical aspects of bringing harm to people. And with that said, uh, I want to be very clear uh, to uh, black and brown communities and to black communities that we must go for systemic change. Uh, we're always going to have some form of law enforcement in our society. The question we need to be asking, who are they going to look like? Where are they going to come from? We need to recruit the conscientious people we want to go into this important part of our cities. And that is how do we keep our cities safe without disgrace? And if we don't do that, we're always going to, going to be outside, outsiders looking in. And I, I hear you on the point of recruitment into law enforcement. I think that's an important point. Now, Eric, you were recently endorsed by the DC 37. Talk to us a bit about what that endorsement means and why that's so important. Uh, DC 37 is the largest municipal service union uh, in the city. Uh, what it says is that Eric speaks on behalf of everyday blue collar workers. I'm a blue collar person. I was a dishwasher as a child to help mom pay the rent. I know what it is to be on the verge of homelessness. They used, they used to call my family and I uh, the, the glad bag children because we carried a garbage bag full of clothing to school every day because we thought we were going to be thrown out. I know what everyday New Yorkers are going through because I've went through a lot. And for 35 years, I have been under the microscope of New Yorkers and they've walked away with, this is a person who has been consistent and how he has helped everyday New Yorkers in this city. And that endorsement reflects that.
Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, brother, thank you so much for joining. And we wish you the very best as this race gets closer and closer in June. Thank you. Take care. Listen, that's it for this week's show, y'all. But before we go, we got to point out something that's extremely evident in the culture. And that's that on our timelines, we see a whole lot of Black excellence, right? I mean, it's melanin power here, Black girl magic there, Black boy joy almost everywhere. But on the other hand, we are inundated with oppression and with trauma. And frankly, I don't have to give out any examples because I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, this duality is actually nothing new for our people. And if you look at the period of Reconstruction, which took place right after the Civil War and Emancipation, see, it started off as a time of great prosperity and political power for our people. But it ended much too fast, and at its conclusion, it birthed justifications for voter suppression and Jim Crow laws. So listen, I want you all to watch. It's called Reconstruction the Vote. It's a video, it's on YouTube, and it's produced by Black History in Two Minutes. It doesn't cover the entirety of Reconstruction. Now, see, for that, you gotta check out Henry Louis Gates and his Reconstruction documentary on PBS. It's dope. But back to this Black History in Two Minutes piece. It's really a great overview of understanding the Reconstruction period and how important it was for our people. So check it out. Now listen, y'all, we cannot get complacent in our success, nor can we become so despaired and disheartened by oppression and white supremacy. See, if we understand our history, it's really the only way we can change our future. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.